Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Good to, good to be back at Starkville, in Starkville at Emmanuel, and to see many old friends, not only from this area, but from other conferences where we bump into each other regularly sometimes. And um, we appreciate you coming tonight on a Friday night. I've been working with the uh, FGA Free Grace Alliance from its very beginning. And um, like everyone has said so far this evening, we encourage you to, to uh, join with us. And I know you're saying, I don't need to join another organization. And that might be true. But you know what? The gospel needs you. And that's the point. The gospel needs you. We're in, um, I don't want to over-dramatize it, a fight for the truth. Uh, to try to keep the gospel clear and free. And it's kind of a David and Goliath battle. And for people to take us seriously means that we need more voices. Yes, we need money too, but we really do need more voices so that people take us seriously because, you know, they tend to say that free grace is just a small little group of uh, uh, Christianity or something like that. And so the more people that can gather together and show that they take this message seriously, the better. So uh, see the information in the back there and... uh, Join with us if you would. And I don't have my notes. I don't need them. No, those are that's music. Somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna be out of tune. I want to talk tonight about the subject that we're really all here for. That makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. It's of course grace. When you think about it. The world is asking you to do something, live up to something, keep a list, do's and don'ts. But grace says, no, it has been done for you. So we're going to talk about what is grace. And I know that this group probably has a definition of something about a free gift, undeserved gift. Uh, It's not just a prayer you say before dinner. It's not the name of a beautiful girl or a not-so-beautiful girl. It's um, not poise under pressure. It's not charm. It's... When we talk about grace and salvation, it's an absolutely free gift of God. And it is absolutely essential to Christianity. And if we lose our understanding of grace, we lose our Christian message. We lose really what Christianity is about, and we melt into what all the other world religions are. Okay? So we're going to talk about grace and compare it to some other things. Uh, For example, we can compare it to justice. Justice is when you get what you deserve. You're driving down the street, you're breaking the speed limit, a policeman pulls you over, he gives you a ticket, you got what you deserve, that's justice. Well, mercy would be if he pulls you over and he says, oh, you know what, Uh, you're you're from Texas, I'll let you go this time, just give you a warning, that's mercy, you don't get what you deserve. What about he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, I'll take you to a man, you'll just follow me, and he turns the sirens on, he clears the way, and takes us here to church. That would be grace, something totally unexpected, something totally that's a surprise. So justice is something that we always expect. In this world, we live in a world of non-grace, justice. Mercy is something we always hope for. But when we encounter grace, we are surprised. And that's why I think the world doesn't really understand grace is because it is such a surprise when they finally, when they finally get it. 
in all of its beauty and all of its wonder. And without grace, the world struggles in a world of ungrace to find acceptance of themselves, acceptance with God, to find any kind of idea of eternal security, to find any idea of assurance of salvation, forgiveness of sins. They struggle for joy. They struggle for hope in the future, in the future for the power to live the Christian life. Grace is essential for all these things. All these things come wrapped up in this package called grace. And when we discover, we are surprised. Uh, When I was pastoring in Texas, I hired a new youth pastor. I was explaining to him that one of the things uh, we do every year, and it's still a tradition today after about 20 years, is every Memorial Day we fish all spring in in the runs of the white bass coming up the rivers and fish form, uh, me and a few buddies, and then we used to freeze them, and then we'd have a fish fry, me and a few buddies and their families. Well, it kept expanding and expanding. Now we get about 100 people. So that means that we have to keep, I have to catch 100 fish. Somebody's got to do it. So I was explaining this to my youth pastor, and uh, he says, hey, I want to go fishing. I want to go to the fish fry. I said, well, you got you to catch the fish and donate them. I was kind of joking around. He said, well, you take me fishing. So I said, okay, I'll take you fishing. So we, uh, he didn't have any gear, so I got gear for him, and we headed up the river. Got up the river, weren't there but a few minutes. We hear this sound of a boat coming up the river. It's a game warden, two game wardens. And I'm the first one. They check me out. I'm fine. I've got my license, got my gear. Everything's, everything's good. They go over to him, and I look over there, and he's up against a tree, and they're frisking him. They say, what in the world's going on? He didn't buy a fishing license. I didn't even think to tell him to do that. I thought I assumed he had one or would know that. He didn't buy a fishing license. So the, the, the uh, ranger said, you know, we can take and confiscate all your gear, my gear, but we're just going to let you go this time with a ticket, 250 bucks. And we had to pack up and leave. So he got justice, got the ticket. He got mercy, he got to keep my gear. And then when we were walking out, we walked by this guy. He's fishing at a hole, and he's packing up his gear, and he's getting ready to leave. And he holds up this big stringer of white bass, and he says, turns to Anthony. He says, hey, you want these? Anthony says, oh, yeah. (laughs) And he he grabs them, and he looks at me, and he says, hey, I got my fish. I go to the fish fry. That, my friends, is grace. He didn't work for it. He didn't deserve it. It was given to him as a gift. The word grace appears about 148 times in the New Testament, 28 times in one of the books in the New Testament. Know what book that is? Romans, book of Romans is the book of grace. That's why I want to look at Romans chapter 3 with you today. And we want to talk about grace and what exactly is it. Of course, we have a basic definition of grace as a free gift. We know that undeserved favor towards man or sinners when we define it in sense of salvation. And we want to talk about why we need the gift of grace. Okay, so in Romans chapter 23, first thing we're going to see here is that God's standard is too high. I'm going to start reading in verse 21. But, okay, let's stop right there. This is probably one of the most important buts you'll find in the Bible. It not only changes The argument in the book of Romans, it turns the page of history and salvation. You see, everything before this word but is about sin. 
If you're familiar with the book of Romans, chapters after the introduction of the book of Romans, it begins in verse 118 by saying, the wrath of God is being poured out upon all the wickedness and unrighteousness of men. And then it goes on to describe the spiritual history of mankind, how man has spiraled downward in their thoughts and in their deeds and in their immorality. And God keeps turning them over to their sin, words of judgment, turning them over, turning them over, turning them over, and his mind becomes corrupted and futile, his thoughts and his actions. And then it ends with a long list of sins at the end of chapter 1. And we conclude that mankind suffers from curvature of the soul. Well, he goes on in chapter 2 to address those who think that they're better than others, think they've got it made because they don't do things that other people are doing, the moralist. And he says, you know what? The things that you judge other people about, you're doing them yourself. And then the second half of chapter 2, he turns to the Jews and he said, you teachers of the law, you teach the law, but you're not keeping it yourself. And then in chapter 3, he kind of draws things to a conclusion by reading this list of, uh, of charges from the Old Testament about sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, no one who seeks after God, verse 11. Verse 12, they've all turned aside and have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And the list goes on, and he concludes with, what is the real cause of it? There's no fear of God before their eyes. So this is the condition of mankind. When we come across verse 21, that changes the whole equation with the word but, the words of contrast. He's going to tell us after three chapters of bad and dark news, light and good news. But now, but now, Something in history has happened. Something in time has been interjected to change the equation. But now the righteousness of God, the perfect standards of God, apart from the law, is revealed. What man has always tried to live up to, the perfect standards of God, is being revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is what they preached. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. What were the prophets trying to teach? They were trying to teach that there was a Messiah coming named Jesus Christ who would take care of this sin problem. In verses 3, 21 through 22, God's standard is too high, but our efforts are too low. Go back to verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, no argument can be offered. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. To those who were Jewish in the Roman audience especially would understand what the message here is that all their lives trying to keep the law, the 613 commands of the law, were futile. They could not keep it on their own. Uh, to those who are under the law, they have no argument to offer to God because they're all, we're all guilty before God. Now, you know that the Old Testament has 613 laws, and it's kind of encapsulated in the most common and popular, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so let's just start right there. 
How you doing with those? Well, you've never murdered anybody, right? I hope not. Wait a minute, but Jesus said, whoever is angry at his brother, he said to those who are ancients, those who are of old, he said, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty of judgment. You've not committed adultery, right? But wait a minute, Jesus said, if a man lusts in his heart after a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. Well, it's not looking so good all of a sudden, huh? How many have broken all Ten Commandments here? Come on, be honest. I'm not the only one. I've broken all Ten Commandments, so have you. If we can't keep the Ten Basic Commandments, how are we going to do with the other hundreds that he has given to us as a standard to keep? Well, you see, the law was never given as a ladder that climbed to heaven. The law was given to show us our sins. That's what he says in verse 20. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, or consciousness of sin, some translations. That's how we know that we're sinners. We look at the law, which reflects God's perfect standard of righteousness. We compare ourselves to that, and we say, oh, oh, we fall far short of that. But the law tells us we have a problem. It doesn't cure the problem. It wasn't meant to cure the problem. It was meant to tell us we had a problem. Now, I stand before you, barely, with two metal knees and one metal hip and four back surgeries. I went through TSA with two metal hips for you to be here. So don't fall asleep on me. When my knee was hurting, I went to the doctor, and he, he put me under an X-ray machine. He said, yep, your cartilage is gone. I said, okay, we'll press the button and make it better. There's no button on an x-ray machine that makes your knees better. You know that? It takes you to the person who can make it better, the surgeon, where I've been too many times. The law had no button that you could push to make you acceptable to God and righteous in his eyes. But the law could take you to the person who can. And that's what verse 22 is saying, that it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Well, there is no difference. When he says that, he means no difference between Jew and Gentile who were both in his Roman audience. So even our best efforts are too low. It's like a man trying to bail water out of a boat coming in faster than it's uh, going out. I was conscious of this when I was in seminary. I was, uh, some of the students, they allowed uh, to grade papers uh, as an assistant to the teacher. You know, grading is always the bane of teaching, so they didn't like to grade papers, so they paid us $5 an hour to grade papers. I graded papers for Dr. Howard Hendricks. And at the same time, I hurt my back, so I ended up in the hospital for my first surgery. I said, well, I'm going to be here a few days. And back in those days, it was more of an extensive surgery in the back, not the microsurgery they do today. So I said, I'll take some work with me, and I'll make $5 an hour while I'm sitting in the hospital. So I took that. When I came awake, I felt good enough. I started grading papers for my professor at $5 an hour. And I said, wait a minute. Let me figure out what it costed me to be here. About $100 an hour. I was losing money faster than I could ever make it. And to all those who think that they can work their way to heaven by the deeds that they do, my friends, you're sinning in your heart and your mind and your attitudes 
and your intentions and your direction far greater than anything you can do to undo the sin that is in us. And that's why he says in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile, all. We're just too much in debt to God. And every good deed is tainted. Wait a minute, it says, there's none who does good, no, not one. Well, can't people do good? I mean, a Hindu can have an orphanage and feed children. Muslims can uh, help widows in distress. Aren't those good deeds? Well, they are in and of themselves on the surface. But if you consider what is underneath of the good deeds that mankind does, in order to gain favor with God, there really is nothing good. Let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine that you have a son, and he disobeys. And you say, son, you're grounded from uh, using the car for a week, okay? And so you're sitting in the living room, and uh, you're watching your favorite football game, and he, he walks in with one of your favorite things, a big old cheeseburger and french fries, and he says, hey, Dad, I got something for you, Mom, look. And you say, oh, that's wonderful, son. That's, that's really nice. That's good of you. Wait a minute. How'd you get these? Well, I took the car. Oh, you disobeyed. So you did a good thing, but you disobeyed. What good can we do in the context of disobedience? And so when the whole world rejects Jesus Christ as Savior and as a way to be acceptable to God and tries to scratch their way towards him, what good is it? by the good deeds that we do to try to get to God on our own in a context of rejecting what he has done for us. That's why we say every good deed is tainted. And our idea of good isn't good enough. See, good's really a relative term. Um, I can say my, my friend's Grant, my friend Ken is good, my wife is good, but this means they're better than other people. I can find somebody gooder than them, and better in English also. We talk about God being good is different, though. We're talking about absolute goodness. You remember the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus, and he said, uh, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life or have eternal life? The rest of the question, let's deal with what he said, good master. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Only one is good. What was he saying? Are you calling me God? Because only God is good. He had the guy on the ropes. Are you going to admit that I'm God? You see, there's an absolute goodness and there's a relative goodness. And our idea of good just isn't good enough. So a man dies and he stands before St. Peter. It's all biblical, right? In front of the gates of heaven. Imagine it with me. And he looks over his shoulder and says, boy, that looks like a beautiful place. How do I get in there? And Peter says, well, tell me about your life. The man says, well, I'm, I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. I raised good children. I paid the bills, and they lived a pretty good life. Peter says, okay, I'll give you one point. And the man says, well, how many points? He says, oh, you have a million points to get in. Uh-oh. Well, tell me more about your life. 
well, I pay my taxes. I'm a pretty good citizen. I, oh, he's, he's trying to think of all the things that he's done. I'm, a, I'm an elder at uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church, a deacon. Um, Peter says, okay, I'll give you another point. The man says, well, in, you know, when I go to Walmart, I put the carts back into place, and I open the door for ladies at the post office. Uh, I feed the neighbor's dog when they're out of town. Peter says, that's good for another point. The man says, the only way I'm going to get in there is by the grace of God. Peter says, that's worth a million points. Come on in. Our idea of good isn't good enough. So grace must be a free gift. And before we talk more about what is grace, let's talk about what it is not. It is not, for example, a payment for good works. The moment a payment is introduced or accepted, it ceases to be grace. That's what the scriptures tell us in Romans 11:6, which is kind of a tongue twister. Romans 4, 5 also, but let's do that one first. But to him who does not work, does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Not his works is accounted for righteousness, but his faith. And then the tongue twister, Romans 11:6. It's a wonderful verse. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You see, it's saying that grace and works are mutually exclusive. Like oil and water cannot mix, we say, or like square cannot be round, they are mutually exclusive. You have Grace, and if you introduce works, it ceases to be grace. You have works, and you introduce grace, and it ceases to be works. You cannot mix the two. So it's not a payment for good works. It's not a reward for good behavior. You know, that's what, where most religions are and many Christians are, is uh, I can get more of God's grace if I do more good things for him. Or, if, you know, many people believe if I keep the sacraments or if I go to church or uh, keep my list of rules, God will give me more grace. But it's not. It's not that. You know what they call that? They call that karma. And much of the world lives under the system of karma. Even a lot of Christians adopt this idea. And there is a truth that you reap what you sow. Of course, Galatians 6 teaches that. But that's talking about eternal rewards, not salvation. But karma is a very mechanical system. It's a closed system. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Period. There's no way out. I've talked to many people in India and in the Far East, also Buddhists and Hindus alike, who believe in this idea of karma and reincarnation. And I say, well, how do you know when you've done enough? None of them can answer. How do you know if you're going to get reincarnated as a dog or a cat or an insect or a Buddha? They don't know. It's a mechanical system that never offers any ultimate hope or security for their future and eternal salvation, whatever their concept of salvation may be. Grace is not a mutual commitment, an agreement where you say, God, I'll serve, I'll serve you. If you save me, I'll serve you. Or I promise and commit my life to you, or I'll make you master of my life if you save me. It's not a mutual agreement. We have views like that, of course, and one of them is lordship salvation, but it's just the understanding that Salvation is something that can be traded for. Well, let's look at the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 6, 15. You don't have to turn there. 
But Genesis 15, 6, you know, is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's a key verse when it comes to understanding what our salvation is all about and how we <clears throat> got it. And I'll just remind you of the story so we don't have to read it. We don't have time for that. But Abraham now is an old man. He doesn't have an heir, which was promised him in the Abrahamic covenant. In chapter 12, he, he was promised a seed that would be a blessing to the whole world, and he was going to be a, a nation. And that seed had not come, and so Abraham's ready to give up, and he turns to Eliezer, his servant, chapter 15, and he says, Eliezer is going to be my heir. And God says, no, 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 Abraham, no, no, no. The heir is going to come from your own body. Abraham's thinking, I'm an old man. What are you talking about? God says, Abraham, I know you're, you're dead. Sexually, you're not active. In other words, and, and he doesn't say that in Genesis. He says that in Hebrews. So Abraham eventually heard it. He says, your body's as good as dead. You're beyond having children. But I tell you what, come outside with me, and I want you to look up. And what do you see? Your children are going to be as many as the stars of heaven. In other words, you're going to have a seed. That seed is going to become a nation, and that nation is going to bless the whole world. And Abraham believed God's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness, imputed to him as righteousness, not because Abraham did anything or earned it or worked for it, but because God promised it to him. And then he, re- he said, Abraham, this is why I brought you out of Ur, to bring you into a land that you would inherit. And Abraham says, well, how do I know that this is true? God says, okay, another object lesson. Go get a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and spread the pieces apart. You've got a big bloody mess now. Now that's called making a covenant. The word berit means to cut. He was cutting a covenant with Abraham. And in those days, to cut a covenant, you do this with the animals and the two parties walk between the pieces, reciting the terms of the, and the conditions of the covenant they're making. You give me that camel, I'll give you my daughter. No, wait a minute. You give me 10 camels, I'll give you my daughter. She's worth more than that. You give me this piece of land, I'll give you 10 donkeys and so forth. And the idea is if you don't keep your side of the bargain, it's going to be a bloody mess. All right? They took this, they took these covenants seriously. The only problem is Genesis 15 tells us before they could walk through the pieces, what did Abraham do? He fell asleep. He fell asleep in a smoking furnace, smoking, in a a smoking pot, flaming oven. It says went through the pieces. And while Abraham was grieving, God reiterated the promises to him of inheriting the land. And he says, I will, I will. Abraham wasn't saying a thing. God was saying, I will. That's called a unilateral, unilateral covenant, one-sided covenant, unconditional covenant, where God is making the condition and God is making the promise and Abraham is promising nothing. That's why Genesis 15, 6 is quoted three times in the New Testament as an example of how we're saved or imputed righteousness through faith and only through faith, not by our works and not by our deeds and not by our promises and not by our commitments that we make to God. You know what God says when we say, God, I promise to serve you, a foxhole prayer. Get me out of this situation. I'll promise to serve you. I'll promise to do the right thing. You know what God does? He just laughs. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? I know. He knows we're going to mess up, and he saves us us anyway. 
just like Abraham messed up, saves him anyway. Just like Isaac messed up, saved him anyway. Just like Jacob messed up, just like David messed up. But our salvation doesn't depend on those gentlemen. As not good as they were, our salvation never depended on them. It always has depended on God's promise. It's not a bargain. It's not agreement. It's grace. It's a free gift. So grace is not also, another thing we could say, is not costly. You see, we have some people talking today about costly grace, and we also have them talking about cheap grace. I reject both terms because the Bible doesn't use them. Grace is absolutely free. So to talk about costly grace or cheap grace is an oxymoron, contradictory terms, like jumbo shrimp or small crab or Microsoft Works. I shouldn't be saying that tonight, I guess, all the trouble I had. Honorable Senator, I don't know, you could go on and on. I'd say military intelligence, but some of you guys would get really mad at me. I think the idea of costly grace that people are trying to say is, you know, God's, God paid so much to save us, now you owe him. But where does it ever say that we owe him for our salvation? Salvation can be a half, uh, a response to salvation can be a have-to response or a want-to response. It never is a have-to response. It's always a want-to response. Talk about that on Sunday. And cheap grace, I think they're talking about uh, people who abuse grace. Now, the Bible does talk about abusing grace, despising grace, falling from grace, and treating it like it's cheap. But grace is not cheap. It's absolutely free. We can abuse it, however. But grace is not costly. It's not cheap. It's absolutely free. It's an absolutely free gift of God. My simple definition of faith that I've kind of, I know everybody has their little favorite definition. Mine is, it's everything we don't deserve for anything we need and more. Think about that. Everything we don't deserve is by God's grace. The meal you ate tonight, the spouse that you married, the children that you have, the salvation that's given to you, everything that we need or don't deserve for everything that we need. Every need is filled by the grace of God. Just think of a verse like Hebrews 4, 13, 16, 4, 16. Come boldly before the throne of grace, where you can find help in a time of need. He meets every need that we have. So we come to verse 24, and it says, being justified freely by his grace. Why does he say freely? The word used for freely there means a gift that is something that is given without cost. And, of course, that is kind of a synonym for, for grace. It really is. Why does Paul use both words? In the Bible, Bible students, when something is repeated, why is it repeated? Emphasis, right? For those of you who are trying to earn your way to heaven and keep the law, I want you to know that God has given Salvation, righteousness, freely by his grace. There's an emphasis there. It is absolutely, totally free. There's nothing you can do, no way to deserve it, no commitment or bargain you can make. It's free. But it's free to those who need it. It did cost somebody something. 
So, ladies, we're losing my voice. Get flowers for Valentine's Day from your husband? Some of you? Yeah. Was there an invoice attached to it? No? You got free flowers, right? Were they free? No, they weren't free, were they? They jacked the prices up three times on Valentine's Day, right? It's just free to the recipient, but it's never free to the giver. So when he says freely by his grace, how did that happen? It's because God paid for it. That's the next part of the verse. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, and that word redemption speaks of a price that is paid, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is the price that God paid for us to, so he could declare us righteous before God? He gave his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who hung on a cross for our sins and bore the weight of our sins upon himself until he said, to tell us thy, it is finished. It is paid for, paid in full. What was paid in full? Everything that I've ever done, no matter how bad it was, no matter how shameful it was, no matter how unmentionable it was, no matter how big a blotch it is on our record, it's paid for. No matter what you did today or what you're thinking now, it's paid for. And guess what? The best thing about grace, it's even got our future covered. You see, because when Jesus died, so he really does know what you're going to do tomorrow and how you're going to really mess up in a couple months from now. When you say the wrong thing to your wife, husband, or you slip up on the internet, or whatever it is, guess what? It's covered. It's covered. Now, that doesn't mean that we say, whoopee, I'm free, I can do whatever I want, which is what we're accused of teaching. That's a whole other lesson um, for another day. But I ask people all the time, I say, how many people do you know who understand God's grace and say, oh, boy, I can do whatever I want, and I'm going to go sin. I got a license to sin. And I've only had about two people in 20 years say, yeah, I can tell you somebody that said that. I have never met anybody like that, but I have met thousands of people who say, God has saved me by his grace. I love him. I'm going to serve him. So it's really a kind of a false argument that it's used to characterize free grace. It has no weight, no evidence. Jesus died for all of our sins and all means all. And Colossians tells us that he has forgiven us all our trespasses. It means all. And that's a wonderful grace. He's got us covered from beginning to end. And that's what he's saying in verse 25. Whom God, who Jesus, whom God has uh, set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. A lot there to unpack, but let me just summarize it. He's saying that our sins are now covered, propitiated. God is satisfied. His justice is satisfied finally by his blood or by the death of Jesus Christ. When we believe in him through faith, we're covered as far as God's, our debt towards God is concerned. Why did God do it this way? Because he needed to demonstrate that he was righteous. He needed to demonstrate his righteousness because in the past, in his faith, in his forbearance or patience, he passed over sins that were previously committed. 
Now, the Jewish people were very well aware of this because they sinned and they had to offer sacrifices continually. And on the Day of Atonement, they had to offer a sacrifice for the whole nation, but it was a continual system of offering sacrifices to cover their sins. And what he's saying is, is that God was patient and he was willing to overlook your sins as long as that sacrifice was made, but there had to be an ultimate sacrifice for God to be ultimately just because he couldn't be, faith, he couldn't be patient forever because endless patience is really injustice. Somebody has said there's a point at which patience ceases to be a virtue. For example, let's say somebody gets arrested. <laughs> this is too, too real of an example today. I heard of somebody who's arrested 44 times and turns around and killed somebody recently. But, you know, the justice system, well, let's be patient, he'll change. Be patient, he'll change. Be patient. 44 times, there has to come ultimate justice at some point or else patience ceases to be a virtue and God could be accused of injustice or even immorality to allow sin to continue. So there had to be an end to it, and that end was Jesus Christ. His justice was poured out on Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. And so the payment was made once for all. Some of you own a home. Well, you think you do. You make payments to a bank. The bank owns your home. And if you stop making payments, they remind you that they own your home, right? Same thing with the Jewish people making sacrifices. They made their payments, but it wasn't paid in full until Jesus Christ paid that price. If you want to come and pay off my mortgage afterwards, I can say I own my home. Meanwhile, I'll just keep lying to people. A free gift is something that has to be accepted like any gift. The way we accept a gift is with open and empty hands. We don't bring anything, then it would be a payment. So we come with empty hands, we receive the gift, and that's called faith. Faith is when we come to God, believe his promise with empty hands, and then we receive the righteousness or imputed the righteousness of God. Faith is simply being persuaded or convinced that something is true. I'm sick, I go to a doctor. I don't hardly know him, but he looks credible. He sounds credible. I look at the wall. He has his degrees. He's on certified board, doctor, etc. So I look like I'm on pretty good ground. Ever heard me talking about him? He walks in the door. Talking about doctors, Everett. I go to your office. I see the certificate on the wall, but I don't know you that well. But I'll believe the certificates, and I'll trust you, okay? And you say, I'm going to write you a prescription and give you a drug, and you take two of these, and you'll get better. So he writes me a prescription I can't even read. I take it to a pharmacist I've never met. He gives me a drug I can't pronounce. But you know, Everett said, if I take these two pills, I'll get better. And I do. I believed him. I accepted what he said is true. I was convinced, I was persuaded that what he said is true. Faith is very simple. It's not complicated. It's just believing something is true. There's no magic formula, no magic prayer. People and get saved by looking me right in the eye. I don't know if Jesus ever, I don't see any accounts of people get saved with their eyes closed in the Bible. You can. There's only two religions in the world. The religion of do, and that's every religion. The Hindus, you have to keep the, the uh, four yogas. The Buddhists have to keep the five pillars. The Hindus have to keep the eightfold path. The Jews have to keep the law. Evangelical Protestants, Protestants have to keep the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments. Many of them think, but you know what? That just puts us in the category with all the other religions. But the Bible says, grace says that it is done, it is paid for, it is finished. 
We are saved by grace, through faith, meaning we don't give a thing. Only two religions in the world. Which one are you living in? You may be here tonight dealing with some of these issues about guilt and feeling, wondering whether God accepts you or have doubts about your salvation. Grace is the answer to those problems. Or you may be listening to this later online and have those doubts about your salvation. You will constantly have doubts if you're trying to perform or work your way to God's acceptance. But when you understand that grace is totally undeserved, it's a free gift of God. And when you come to him with those empty hands of faith and say, God, I believe your promise, and I know that Jesus Christ, your son, has died on the cross for my sins. He's risen from the dead. He's alive today, and that's why he can make me that promise. And with your eyes wide open, you say, you know what? I believe that. Then you can have eternal life and be secure forever and rest with the assurance of your salvation. Let's pray. And so, Lord, for anyone who may have these doubts, I pray that grace would be the resounding answer to them. Instead of trusting in our own efforts, we believe that Jesus has done what we could not do. He lived the perfect life. He died a perfect death. As the Son of God, he was an eternal sacrifice, which we could never be. As the Son of God, he rose from the dead, which we could never do. He gave us eternal life, which we could never deserve. And we do believe in him as Savior, and we rejoice in that truth. We thank you for that. If there's anyone who has those doubts, may today be the final minute of their doubts as they believe in Jesus as Savior. And we thank you for the grace of God that is so wonderful, so unfathomable, and even difficult to explain and appreciate. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.